Welcome to the National Film Pod of Canada, the podcast with a different take on the movies. My name is George Kaplan. In this episode, I finish my series on the early history of Hollywood using a book called The Hollywood Studio System by Douglas Gomery. And I deliver on my promise to give the origin story of how popcorn became the perennial movie snack. Before going further, I'd like to do a short commentary about this year's Oscars. This probably belongs in my podcast about the early Canadian film history, but it crosses over into Hollywood's hold over Canada. There is a short animated movie that was nominated for an Oscar, and it gathered a lot of attention here in Toronto, specifically because the movie takes place in Toronto. It's not a Canadian movie, it's an American movie, and it's called Turning Red. You'll find the title ironic after you hear what I have to say about it. You should have heard the over-the-top giddiness of journalists on radio and TV about the fact that if you watch this, you could see the actual Toronto in the background. Not the usual Toronto masquerading as New York, but actual Toronto scenes. None other than the director of the Toronto International Film Festival, Cameron Bailey, tweeted, and I quote, the time I'm going to spend scouring every frame of this for Toronto stuff. Unquote. Now, here's the problem. This is happening in 2023. People who have listened to my podcast about the early history of Canadian film, and if you haven't, you should, because it's really great, will remember that Canadian journalists in the last century, who were once encouraging the Canadian film industry at the beginning, were eventually reduced after years of failure in getting our own film industry going, to looking at Hollywood films for any reference to Canada inside them. And that took place in the 1920s. A hundred plus years later, nothing has changed in Canada. It's the same attitude. It's hard to describe how I feel about this state of affairs. I kind of go from sadness to anger. I leave it to listeners to figure out their own feelings. Now, let's continue with the early history of Hollywood. The conduct of firms within the studio system. Here is a breakdown of how a corporation went about managing their movie studio. The production decisions of the majors were based on information generated by their theater divisions. So, in general, the production process began with a corporate decision in New York establishing the number of films needed for the following season. Then the chief executive of the major studio would allocate a budget for feature production, either A or B, by costs and shorts, including cartoon and newsreel. At the same time, a detailed release schedule was also handed to the executive at the West Coast Studios. These decisions were always made by the corporate president and his staff in the New York office. The Hollywood staff was relatively free to decide how to produce the most popular products, but they were told by the corporate office in New York how much money they had to do it with and what was needed, and so on and so forth. 
All the final decisions rested with the chief operating officer of the corporation, based in New York, not Hollywood. Once the movie schedule was agreed on, the responsibility fell on the studio in Hollywood, and as the author says, quote, to produce films as efficiently as possible and still create a stream of new and different products, Hollywood utilized a factory system of production based on extreme specialization of labor, unquote. Here's how that went. Generally, a studio chief coordinated the desires and budgets issued by the New York office with the materials and labor at hand. And the studio chiefs uh, in this case would have been, if it was like MGM, it was Louis B. Mayer. Uh, for famous players, it was uh, Adolf Zucor and so on, all the usual suspects that we've heard of before. There would be a set of producers below these people who would each be responsible for making the necessary products. Usually in that time period, a first-run movie theater would require around 100 movies per year in order to fill their schedule. 100 movies per year. The producer, in turn, would then organize writing, shooting, edit, and editing within defined budget constraints. The producer, in turn, would then organize writing, shooting, and editing within defined budget constraints. The process of actual film production was divided into specialized units. This might be more familiar to cinephiles. By units, the author refers to the fact that inside each studio, the different processes required to make a movie were divided into a specialty. There were cinematography units, sound units, costumes, set building, makeup, hair, editing, and so on. Each person in these units was a specialist in their field, but didn't know much about the other processes. Like if you were, uh, were a great cinematographer, you didn't necessarily know anything about sound or makeup. Everybody kept to their own specialized uh, knowledge, and presumably the producer, or even the director, knew more about everything, about what it takes to make a complete movie, but that varied with the, each individual. Breaking down the filmmaking process into these specialties was necessary, for the obvious reason that studios had to produce a lot of movies in a given year. So making movies on, this, on an assembly line was pretty much the only way to deliver all the products that were required. Ironically, I'm not sure, actually if that's the word, uh, this assembly line process does not make sense when you're an independent filmmaker, because you're not a studio when you're independent, so you're not going to make 100 movies in a year. But independent filmmakers use this system in their filmmaking. Every member of the crew is a specialist, like in a studio. That has always struck me as odd, and I might be the only one who thinks like this, but I would venture that uh, for an independent filmmaker to use this studio process, it's wasteful and expensive. It needs to be re-evaluated, but uh, I digress. Uh, the author says here that, that this form of decentralized manufacturing process was innovated uh, during the 20s, at the General Motors Automobile Corporation, and Hollywood fully adopted the process by 1930. Once the movies came off the assembly line, uh, they needed to be seen by a wide audience, and again to maximize profits from their theaters, the majors developed a complex set of distribution practices. The distribution companies of the majors cooperated 
to establish runs and zones and clearances for all cities. Now I'm going to explain what this uh, business strategy is, but uh, I'm going to go outside of the book to explain it since I don't think Gomery made it too clear. So I'm going to use the definition from a film reference uh, website. So quote, this uh, run zone clearance system was designed to guarantee that films were circulated so as to ensure broad exhibition and to bring in maximum profits to the parent company. The national exhibition market, especially the urban market, in the United States was divided into geographical zones, and that probably includes Canada too. In each zone, films move consecutively from first run to several intermediate steps, second run, third run, and so on, to total run venues. Ticket prices tended to drop with each run. There was, in addition, a clearance time between runs, which meant that moviegoers could expect to wait months or up to a year after a film premiered at a downtown picture palace before it reached a neighborhood theater or a small town venue. By privileging their own theaters and organizing distribution according to the run zone clearance system, the Big Five assured their dominance of the American motion picture industry. Other business strategies used by studios to maximize profits were blind booking and buying. Here is an explanation of these from the same site. Quote, Exhibition at independently owned and operated theaters was also constrained by procedures that governed how major studio films were booked by exhibitors. Blind booking meant that exhibitors had to schedule the films for the coming season based only on descriptions provided by the studio, with no actual preview prints available. Furthermore, exhibitors had little choice but to agree to block booking, which required that they take a full season, or at least a significant number of films, shorts as well as features, from the same studio. Exhibitors were thus less able than in the past to pick and choose titles and thus tailor their programming week by week to a particular clientele. Unquote. The block booking and blind buying was used on independent exhibitors, not the movie theaters owned by the majors. These tactics kept selling costs low and helped to guarantee a base of revenue even for the most mediocre film. Here's a quote from Gomery, quote, In effect, distributors shifted a part of their risk to powerless exhibitors, guaranteeing that even films accepted poorly in the first run houses would receive a sub-run playoff, unquote. Which basically means that Hollywood made money from their bad movies. That's what it adds up to. But even at their peak use in the 30s, these two tactics gave only a small portion of revenues to the majors. So going back to the run and clearance zone system, another advantage of it is that it minimized the number of theaters the majors needed. With only 15% of all uh, U.S. Uh, first-run theaters, the majors could easily gather in 50 to 75% of the box office revenues. I'm going to repeat that. So with only 15% of all the U.S. first-run theaters, the majors could easily gather in 50 to 75% of the box office revenues. 
So, and second, it kept the major's theaters fully utilized year in and year out. Despite the depression, wars, aging stars, and changes in public tastes, the majors could count on a steady flow of revenues at its box office. So now I'm going to describe how Paramount's uh, theatrical division, called Publix, with an X at the end, operated their theaters and how they managed them. It's uh, very removed from the glamour of the movies, but it doesn't get talked about too much, and it says a lot about the business side of Hollywood. So, quoting from the book here, quote, Publix regularized costs, booked from a central office and made a science of national advertising. Publix carefully controlled all expenditures at its theaters. Each theater had a weekly budget, detailing all costs. All figures were carefully scrutinized by accountants in the home office, and any excess had to be explained in a written report. In addition, local managers also recorded all non-financial aspects of their operations and forwarded such information to the New York office where experts constructed elaborate charts to serve as guides for future decision-making. For example, all assistant managers of public houses recorded the temperature and humidity from the orchestra floor, balcony, and lobby, and outside every hour on the hour for the complete operating day. Public's experts then use this data to issue orders concerning use of the heating and air conditioning. Other specialists calculated traffic patterns, population densities, income distributions, and recreation habits before a theater was built or purchased. Unquote. The public's theater chain also helped to transform the movies into what the author called the era of presentation cinema. This started in the 20s. Places where movies were shown were transformed into movie theaters. The look of it was based on traditional theaters for the simple reason that the movie moguls wanted to attract a more middle-class audience. And in those days, before movies took hold, the middle class went to the theater. And this is where all the cliches of the early movies got started. The large uh, auditoriums, the lavish decorations, the ushers in red costume with a little hat showing people to their seat, and all was taken from the theatrical houses of the early 20th century. One of the reasons for doing this was probably because the Mughals wanted the middle-class customers to feel at home. So when the, they went to the movies, they were in a familiar surrounding. Uh, the only thing that changed was the entertainment, uh, movies instead of plays. And actually, did you ever wonder why uh, movie theaters are called movie theaters? Well, that's where that comes from. So the deluxe and ornate picture palaces were built with decorative uh, displays of Oriental, Egyptian, French, or Spanish architecture. And these palaces served up elaborate shows these shows opened with a five-minute uh, overture from a house orchestra of 25 to 100 musicians, depending on the theater, of course. Next came the stage show that lasted like four, 15 to 30 minutes. Then a newsreel was showed for about five to 10 minutes, and then a short film, 10 to 20 minutes, and then a feature film for 60 to 80 minutes. 
and exhibitors uh, try to limit the complete show to 150 minutes, sometimes cutting the feature film by several minutes rather than restricting the number of live shows. The coming of sound changed little. Expensive live shows were systematically replaced by vaudeville shorts, which is to say that uh, instead of watching some live act on stage from vaudeville, people saw short movies featuring acts from vaudeville. This type of presentation in cinema changed to all movies by 1930. Then came the Great Depression, and with a sharp uh, decrease in revenues, it forced exhibitors to differentiate their offerings and seek out new sources of revenue to attract more patrons. Theater owners initiated double or even triple bills. And in uh, 1931, theater owners also began to tempt customers with giveaways of pillows, chinaware, bicycles, lamp, watches, and games like bingo. One of the most important changes in movie theaters was air conditioning. Only the majors could afford this sizable investment during the 30s. With the carrier company's uh, development of a compact, uh, relatively inexpensive air conditioning system, and many more exhibitors installed systems for air cooling and humidity control. Another additional source of revenue in the 30s was to sell food directly to patrons rather than let them shop at nearby stores. During the 20s, few exhibitors sold candy, since at that time, the theater owners kept their auditorium very dark and had ushers lead customers to their seat, so only a prepackaged product could be accommodated. But in any case, uh, sales of food did not fit the high-class image the companies wanted at that time. With the coming of the Great Depression, theater owners changed their minds about selling food. So nearly all added candy sales and began to experiment with the marketing of other foods. Yes, popcorn soon emerged as the cornerstone of refreshment operations. Unlike candy, it possesses a seemingly addictive aroma, which filled lobbies as customers paused before the movies and between features. Popcorn was easy to manufacture and seemed to appeal to moviegoers of all ages. To complement this salty popcorn, exhibitors introduced an, an array of cold, soft drinks. Soon, suppliers developed beverage dispensing equipment to solve the problem of individual glass bottles rolling and cracking in the auditorium. Sales of refreshments skyrocketed, and so the majors purchased popcorn by the train load, thereby obtaining substantial discounts. A box of popcorn retailing at 15 cents costs only 3 cents for raw materials, container, oil, and corn. Even with wages, equipment, and overhead, the profit rate usually soared past 100%. So it was not surprising that by 1947, nearly 90% of the U.S. movie houses offered popcorn. The lone major studio holdout was the conservative Lowe's Incorporated, owner of MGM. During the slow days, sales of refreshments exceeded box office revenues. Popcorn soon became a major U.S. crop. In 1920, there were 60,000 U.S. acres devoted to popcorn. By 1948, 
over 300,000 U.S. acres were planted. As part of this new strategy of selling food, exhibitors ritualized the intermission. The first feature would end, the house lights would go up, and the patrons would rush to the lobby to purchase popcorn, candy, and drinks. Then the coming attraction trailer would show up, and that signaled a return to more entertainment. The form became movie, food, movie, in a continuous pattern of consumption. Other services that were standard before were eliminated during the Depression. Ushers were fired, theater lobbies and auditoriums, as well as exteriors, were not maintained. The rundown decorative displays of the movie theaters gradually came to represent the bygone era of presentation cinema. External shocks. The studio system already analyzed was so successful that only forces outside of its control could significantly disrupt it. There were three such outside shocks in the studio era. The first was a decrease in demand caused by a decline in income during the Great Depression. Although accurate statistics are hard to come by, box office revenue seems to have declined by 25%. The majors cut wages, sought revenues from refreshments and finessed bulging mortgages as best they could. The U.S. federal government, through the National Recovery Act of 1933, helped the studios by openly sanctioning their monopolistic behavior, which is one way of saying that the U.S. government was okay with the movie Monopoly at that time during the Depression. So instead of the informal cooperation which had existed throughout the 20s, open and explicit collusion and exploitation took place free from any threat of government antitrust action. The majors immediately codified their one-zone clearance system and boosted revenues. The second shock came from outside in 1938 when President Roosevelt shifted gears and filed an antitrust suit against the majors and the minor studios. They were charged with conspiring to fix distribution contracts, terms of runs, clearances, and admission prices. In 1940, all parties signed a consent degree, but little changed. In August 1944, the government tried again and reactivated the case and pressed divorce settlements of the majors' theaters. A solution was agreed to by the U.S. Supreme Court in the 25th of July 1949, signaling the end of the 20-year period of the studio era. Although the full force of this decision would not come about until the early 50s. The final external shock felt prior to 1949 also involved the U.S. government. Uh, during the Second World War, the revenues from overseas declined. Gradually, the majors lost markets in Europe and the Far East, which together had accounted for 30 to 50 percent of traditional revenues from abroad. And I guess here they include uh, they did not include Canada because that was uh, incorporated into their domestic revenue. So the Second World War did what all the earlier quotas and taxes and tariffs could not do: partially shut down the overseas distribution of Hollywood movies. So to offset the loss of the European and Far Eastern markets, the majors returned to South and Central America 
and the Department of State and the U.S. government for the Office of Inter-American Affairs assisted their efforts. So Hollywood had help from their government. The State Department shipped hundreds of U.S. newsreels south, but the demand for other film products never followed. Hollywood had fully exploited the Latin American markets prior to the war. There was little else to extract. The market for motion pictures in the U.S. during the Second World War offered a very different prospect. Domestically, the war period provided the best five years in movie history, and these increases compensated for any loss from elsewhere. Revenues in real dollars peaked in 1946, and so did movie attendance. With restrictions on production, the numbers of features fell, but uh, no matter, revenues per film rose faster than costs. Even independent producers, usually working through RKO and United Artists, prospered. The year 1946 saw the highest profit during Hollywood's studio era. Paramount had 39 million profit, Fox 25 million, Warner Brothers 22 million, MGM 18 million, even poor cousin RKO had 12 millions in profit. All of these were corporate records, not approached again until the 70s. And here the author says that the U.S. motion picture industry would have loved the Second World War to go on, at least on the home front, forever. Conclusions To sum up, the studio era represented a stable 20-year epoch in the history of American film. Eight major corporations dominated all phases of the industry. All the corporations survived the Great Depression and World War II. The U.S. government antitrust menace was held at bay for a decade. Such was the resilience and power of the studio system as a profit-making business institution. But with all the glamour and the razzmatazz associated with the launching and promotion of feature films, we have come to associate the economic power of the film industry with control over film production, which is not true, as we have seen. It was their distribution network that made the money. So why were there eight studios only, five majors, actually, and not more? The answer lies with the barriers to entry created by the eight major movie corporations. Anyone during the 30s and 40s could have invested the necessary millions in film production, but then any new corporation would somehow have had to get their films into theater screens. The eight major corporations had distribution and exhibition all to themselves and cooperated to keep out potential competitors. In other words, it was the mundane world of movie wholesaling and retailing, which provided the majors with the necessary muscle to erect and maintain barriers to keep away all serious competition. There was no competition in the movie business, and that's why there were eight studios only. And since the major corporations benefited from cooperation between themselves, it was important to analyze them as a group first, as has been done here. Next, in the podcast series, we'll talk about individual studios. Uh, we'll start with Paramount, since it had a major influence in Canada. But for now, this concludes our overview of the old Hollywood studio system. That's the end of Episode 7 and the early history of Hollywood. 
I hope that wasn't too painful. As mentioned, in upcoming podcasts, I will talk about individual studios like Paramount and go into details about them. I will also talk about the modern-day Hollywood and how the movie business works now and how it affects us here in Canada. If you have any comments about the podcast, you can reach the NFP at nfpcan at protonmail.com. That's nfpcan at protonmail.com. Bye for now.